This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SOSMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. Episode 61. Mother, son, we greet you and are thankful for the sweetness of the earth. Spoiler alert, this is the final scene of the final episode of Mad Men. The lives we've yet to lead. New day. New ideas. A new you. In this scene, Don Draper, legendary New York ad man, has shed everything from his former life and is meditating at a spiritual retreat. And just as you think maybe Don Draper has turned over a new leaf, that he really is a new person, we see that he realizes he can take that most American of ideas, a new, better you, and use this new age version of that idea I'd like to, buy the world to sell Coke. Home and furnish it with love. Ah, uh, perfect harmony through handing cokes around and enjoying life. It was a somewhat controversial ending to the show, but it fit perfectly within Mad Men's overall message, within Don Draper's philosophy, his, his definition of what advertising is all about. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. You are okay. As the show depicts the 1960s, as it was becoming the 1970s, hippie free love was becoming new age enlightenment. It was this sense that maybe there was some structure. Maybe there was something out there that could replace the old ways other than just wild abandon because things were scary. The world was changing. The world was terrifying. It was so new. And people across the country, but especially on the West Coast, were shedding their old ways and old ideas, their old selves and their old spiritualities for new ones. Most notably, those from India and East Asia, the ones that focus on mindfulness. Today, we underestimate just what it must have felt like back then to know that um, the world could end 
at any moment. That's journalist Ahmed Kabil. My name is Ahmed Kabil. I work at Timeline, uh, which is a media for organization that's providing uh, context to today's news through history. And uh, I'm a staff writer there, and I also am a video producer. I caught up with him at a noisy Whole Foods over Skype in San Francisco, so please forgive this audio. Right now, and depending on how the sound is, I can move, but I'm sitting in the, uh, in the Whole Foods cafe. Uh, <laughs> Whole Foods in San Francisco over Skype talking about mindfulness. It's so perfect. And I wanted to talk to Ahmed because he recently wrote a piece detailing how mindfulness meditation migrated from monasteries to the modern mainstream startup culture, to Google and Twitter and Facebook and Amazon and Apple far away from its spiritual origins. It's now something that's part of that deconstructing programmer culture, the the world of people who are really interested in quantifying themselves to improve themselves, to overcome the things that we usually talk about on this podcast. So how did that even become a thing? How did that enter into American culture, into Western culture? Well, according to Ahmed, it had a lot to do with our fear of nuclear annihilation. And many of the, the, the teachers who set up some of the earliest institutes for teaching some of the beats in the Bay Area, like Buddhism and stuff, they were very self-consciously styling themselves as like, this, these are ways of being that can help stave off a nuclear holocaust. These are, these are, uh, these are the things that, um, that can help us advance our consciousness towards like where we need to be to uh, solve these issues. And I think it's just, you know, that era is inaugurated by, you know, the, the first atomic bombs hitting and, and uh, it sort of loomed in, in the popular imagination for, for a long time during that period. According to Ahmed, the Western world dabbled off and on with meditation and mindfulness leading up to the Cold War. But after World War II, after the immigration policies toward people from the East loosened up considerably and right at a time when people were very fearful of a nuclear doomsday, and the beat generation was looking for new ways of being and thinking. The leaders of the counterculture movement, the hippie intellectuals and the subversive voices of the 1950s and the 1960s, were very taken by these religions that were coming into the United States, these spiritualities, these philosophies, and these practices of India and East Asia that seemed very new, but also seemed to be right in line with a lot of the things that they were discovering on their own. You know, they're after a lot of things. I think Kerouac put like the ragged, ecstatic joy of pure being uh, in all of its forms. And, and I think like, which sounds pretty awesome, right? And, and I think, uh, you know, contrary to the, the homogenous, you know, um, mainstream American culture, uh, these folks who are already, uh, you know, seeking ways outside the mainstream, I think found in practices like uh, like Zen Buddhism, especially uh, a certain sensibility, a certain way of being in the world that was very appealing and that spoke to them. And uh, to the degree that they actually practiced, it kind of varied among the beats and among the hippies. You know, some of them thought like it was all about meditation, like uh, Gary Snyder, um, a beat poet. Others like Kerouac actually, you know, maintained a, a strong drinking habit and, and would attempt to, to meditate from time to time, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't a daily part of his life. And so, but the idea systems were appealing um, for a variety of different, you know, reasons and people of different orientations around that time. 
So a lot of these voices, a lot of these intellectuals, a lot of these thinkers from the 1950s and 1960s, these outspoken and subversive voices, they began to organize and have followers and followings and sometimes their own retreats and all of this sort of built and built and built through those decades. And in 1974, in Boulder, Colorado, a large number of these people converged at a meeting of the Naropa Institute. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so 1974, Boulder, Colorado, uh, <laughs> which uh, must have been a seed. Um, and uh, there's there's a Buddhist scholar there. Well, Buddhist scholar is, is inaccurate. He is an exiled Tibetan monk who uh, is supposed to be like the 11th incarnation of this Buddhist priest or some such jazz. And uh, he, from the age of five, was was um, you know positioned to be this great spiritual leader. Um, he was uh, an iconoclast who started um, a series of courses in Boulder, Colorado, uh, which would become the Naropa Institute. And he did this in the summer of 1974. And uh, Trungpa, this charismatic and flawed spiritual teacher, brought together Eastern and Western ideas and allowed people to pick and choose from the philosophies of his home without being a stickler for adhering to the religious aspects. And it was a very influential message the people who had come to speak and listen at that gathering. Like just the who's who of uh, uh, Ram Dass, who, who worked with Timothy Leary at Harvard to, uh, to, to bring LSD to the masses in a way, you could say, um, was teaching there. You have uh, Allen Ginsberg, uh, uh, author uh, Steve Silverman, actually, uh, who I know uh, was a student in Allen Ginsberg's class uh, at the, uh, during those courses and talks about just having this huge, just the biggest crush on this guy and like uh, wanting to work with him. And I mean, it, it, it essentially just, you have all of these great minds together and um, and including John Cage, uh, the musician. Uh, and they've all been hanging out really for the last decade in various contexts at various Zen centers and happenings and, and uh, things of that nature. And uh, they come together for Naropa um, but the true significance is perhaps not so much in the fact that all these cool people were there teaching mind-blowing classes, but uh, it was actually two lesser-known students uh, who uh, you get, which is uh, Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. So if you're learning from Trungpa, you're just still having to deal with some religion. But if you're learning from Kornfield and Goldstein, these two took away from all of this stuff, from what they had learned in Thailand and India and Burma, what they had talked about at that Institute, the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. They took all of that and they focused on this one aspect, mindfulness, meditation on the present moment to gain insight into your non-conscious processes. And it seemed to really, really work and you could get really good at it. And so based on all that, Cornfield and Goldstein set up all of these places all around their area and in areas beyond, and it really started to catch on. By the end of the 1970s, mindfulness reached academia proper. And when biologist John Kabat-Zinn was introduced to the practice, it was the catalyst required to truly bring it into the mainstream. Yeah, so I mean, uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, might be familiar to um, listeners if they've there's this this viral video of him delivering a, a mindfulness seminar uh, to Google employees. No matter what they gave the greatest musicians with the greatest instruments in the world and they still tune first to themselves and to each other and so in a sense i like to say you know that meditation 
is in some sense you could say it's like tuning your instrument before you take it out on the road. That comes later, obviously, but he he's uh, so he he essentially um, was uh, this uh, son of uh, of I can't remember what field his father was, but he was a doctor, and and so he was raised in this very intellectual environment. His um, his uh, father-in-law is John Kabat-Zinn of a People's History of the United States fame, and so um, you have this like figure who is um, really entrenched in what we consider, <laughs> you know, in the U.S. is like, all right, you come, you've got this good pedigree. He's like Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, he's at MIT, uh, and he essentially is is. Uh, He's, he's just at MIT studying to be a microbiologist, I believe, when all of a sudden he sees a seminar by Philip Kaplow, um, who is a, who's an American Zen monk um, who is speaking on, uh, on mindfulness at MIT. And uh, Kaplow, interestingly enough, was introduced to Zen because he was covering the, the Tokyo War Tribunals after World War II, the, essentially the, anal like the analog to the Nuremberg War Trials. He was, that's how he got exposed to Buddhism, and then he became a monk. and and uh, wound up teaching John Kabat-Zinn and others uh, mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn was interested in this, and so he wound up uh, uh, working with uh, the guys who were from Naropa, Goldstein and Cornfield, uh, at the Insight Meditation Society. And uh, the, the, big, the big point with Kabat-Zinn is that he basically made um, mindfulness an accepted, scientifically proven, validated approach. Uh, that can really help Americans. And he did this through... According to Ahmed, after Zen, Western science and medicine became very interested in mindfulness meditation and the benefits of it because it was divorced from its woo-woo and spiritual and religious origins. And so it began to emerge and be recorded in evidence-based papers and practices. And soon after that, after this big vetting process, celebrities in the know began to dabble with it. And once Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan and NBA coaches and Wall Street traders began to experiment with mindfulness, it hit the mainstream. But it was still among many, many of those people, a little bit fantastical, still wrapped in the rituals of ancient philosophies and traditions, and it remained so until around 2012. 2008, 19, 11, 12, somewhere in there, something entered our lives that would lead many humans to become very concerned with how to manage their attention and focus. With an always-on, always-available internet in your pocket, thanks to smartphones, with the beckoning call of a dopamine-releasing hamster wheel of habits that was previously unavailable until we had social media, it became, it became a, a sort of selective pressure that you be able to manage your own brain. And this is the crucial thing. People who can stay focused long enough to get things done, who can avoid distraction well enough to navigate modern life, have a leg up in today's society. And according to Ahmed and this episode's guest, what mindfulness meditation offers is exactly that. If you'd like to read Ahmed's article, it is at timeline.com. The headline is Mindfulness from the monastery to the startup. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we talk to Michael Taft, someone who has taught mindfulness meditation at Google and now has a new book explaining his approach 
along with explanations of the scientific underpinnings of meditation, mindfulness, and the ability of every human brain to manipulate its own neuroplasticity so that it can be better at avoiding delusion, bad habits, and the biases, fallacies, and other pitfalls of reason we explore on this show. More on all that after the break. So I'm building a website right now for my new book, and I'm soon to reveal all about this book. Right now I'm researching and writing and interviewing and traveling, and whenever I'm not working on this podcast, I am working on that book. And the website has to be great. It has to be simple, and there's going to be all these things I'm going to ask from you that I want to be able to implement easily and nearly effortlessly. So what am I going to use? I'm going to use Squarespace. Building a website can be so tough and even if you know your way around all that stuff, coding and Photoshop and design, it's still easier to create something that looks good and works well in a way that's not time consuming when you use Squarespace, whether it's a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant or whatever else. And if you don't know coding, you don't know all that stuff. This is what you use in this day and age. You probably need a website for something. And lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. And not only does Squarespace provide you with these intuitive and easy-to-use tools, they also give you state-of-the-art technology to power that site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust in Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust in them too. Seriously, you cannot beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace, and they give you 24-7 online support, ready to answer your questions at your beck and call no matter what your problem is. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your badass website right now, today, this afternoon, in 15 minutes. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code SOSMART and you will get 10% off of your first purchase. And you can show your support to You Are Not So Smart and tell Squarespace that, yes, you heard them loud and clear right here on this podcast. We thank you, Squarespace, for your support. And I want you to go there because here's their tagline, and it's totally true. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now we return to our program. Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Michael W. Taft, an author, editor, meditation teacher, and neuroscience junkie. He is currently a meditation coach specializing in secular science-based meditation training in corporate settings, particularly tech startups and Silicon Valley companies, including Google, where he has taught. He is also the author of some other books, Non-Dualism and Ego. He's the editor of some other books, Hardwiring Happiness and the Science of Enlightenment. And his current book, the one we're talking about, is The Mindful Geek, Secular Mindfulness for Smart Skeptics. So he is the person to talk to about the science side of this for people who don't want to wade into religious and spiritual and possibly fantastical woo-woo waters, but do want to see what can this do for me. He was previously the editor-in-chief of Being Human. That's where I met him. He is a friend of mine. We talk about stuff all the time. We bounce ideas off of each other. And I think he is just a fantastic human being, a beautiful person, 
who I love talking to. And so I thought he would be great for the show when I realized he had written a book about a topic that I thought, if you're like me, you were skeptical about. And until I talked to Michael and met him and was around some of the people that he hangs out with, I was probably like many of you, not sure if I believed any of this. And that's what we're going to talk about in this interview. Michael's the perfect person for it because he's been to Japan and India and has been meditating for more than 30 years and has extensive experience in both Buddhist and Hindu practices. All right, let's pick his brain. Um, yeah, so like, you know, we've known each other for a while and, um, I knew that you were, this was part of your life. This is a big part of your life. And I've, I should have asked a long time ago for advice because I've, I've dabbled with meditation and just, and and not really understanding what I was doing. I've done it poorly after reading a a good portion of your book. I realized, oh yeah, I was being stupid about this and and trying to just, (laughs) just trying to emulate it's, it's it's almost like trying to do you know to to cut out your own uh, your own pancreas or so. It's, it's like it's like uh, it's trying to do self surgery in a way because when you're doing it wrong, you're doing yourself a real disservice. Do you have you found that that's something that that happens a lot when you're trying to teach people and explain it to people that they're they've attempted it and they've done it poorly, so they think that it's just stupid. Uh, I find that people tend to think they're doing it wrong all the time. And then that turns out to be the biggest obstacle because our society has a couple built in misconceptions about meditation. And then when people start meditating and they, you know, their experience doesn't match those uh, misconceptions, they're like, Hmm, something must be wrong. So, you know, the two misconceptions are that you're going to uh, have no thoughts That's number one, like you're just going to have this blank mind, which I have to say almost never happens. Uh, Just you can just let that misconception go right now. Um, And the other one is that you're going to like, you know, disappear in a cloud of (laughs) ecstatic bliss, you know, and um, that happens sometimes, but it's not that often. And so, uh, you know, those are complete. I don't know, somehow they're archetypes we have that are really wrong and, uh, but very pervasive. And so when people start meditating, especially on their own and that stuff doesn't happen, they get really discouraged. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of, you know, having a teacher or, you know, working with a meditation group or whatever is just, um, getting some, I don't know, shop talk that can help disabuse you of things like these misconceptions and other little tricks that, um, and help you to learn other little tricks. Yeah, I, that's what I did. That's what I did, first of all. And I don't know where, it was probably from a YouTube video or something I read (laughs) on Reddit or something where I was, it was like, you know, just when a thought comes into your mind, tell it to go away and dismiss it and come back to center. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds doable. And, you know, and I thought the more I would do this, the better I'll get at it. And I just, you know, I have a very, uh, I have a very chatty mind when it is, and I would find, why am I thinking about this thing? Is that part of the meditation thing that I'm supposed to, and it just, as the more I got off of the, the more I felt like I was bad at it, the more I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to do this without, um, a lot of help. And that's why it was so nice. Cause there's a, you, you, 
in the book, you take, you really take your time getting the reader to the point where you're going to actually attempt something. And then what you attempt is very simple. And I was able to do that very easily, uh, focusing, uh, and, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself because I liked it so much. The, so, um, so you like, I like that the first dip into that world that's offered in the book is to actively explore something with a very focused, um, intent as your first test meditation. And that was something that I enjoyed because I needed it to be active. I needed there to be some verbs in what I was doing and it, uh, and whenever my alarm went off, and I probably should not have set an alarm. It's, the alarm it, is fine. Okay. Well, it scared the shit out of me because <laughs> because I was so I had reached a really a really focused place, and it was I was startled the way you would be startled, like in a scary movie or something. And and I thought to myself, well, that's nice. I don't think that's ever the the timers never went off, and it startled me before. So, um, well, wow, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, that means that you were getting into like a flow state, you know, where you're actually so focused that the rest of the world starts to kind of drop away. I don't know if you've got to that point in the book yet, but we do, I, you know, I do address that pretty uh, completely later on. Mm-hmm. Well, let's back up a little bit. And, you know, you, you, I've known you as a, uh, a very uh, uh, practical, pragmatic but, uh, and curious and scientifically minded person. And I, I'm interested to, you know, especially for people who are just being introduced to this, how did you get interested in meditation and how did you sort of get on that path yourself? Well, for me, it came from having really terrible anxiety. So when I was in high school, uh, this was a long time ago, Michigan in the seventies, you know, I just had very difficult time with anxiety, uh, uh, and there really wasn't much help available for me. So I didn't know what to do. And I realized that, um, I had heard about something called meditation that was supposed to help you with anxiety. And I didn't have any teachers or anything, but I just kind of read some books and learned to do a little bit of it myself. And it really helped. I got some pain relief and there's nothing more, um, you know, convincing than pain relief. It's hard to fake, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that I had been anxious and after meditating felt actually less anxious was a big, you know, seller for me. And so I started meditating pretty regularly uh, all the way back then and uh, just continued to uh, get more and more interested as the years and decades passed. So it's been like about 35 years now that I've been doing this work. And you've been around the world with this. This isn't something that's, uh, you know, this isn't just something you've done out of books and uh, people you could find nearby. You've really, you've really put in the effort. Yeah. I mean, I definitely went all the way and have, you know, meditated in uh, India quite a bit and Japan and other places around the world and put in some time. I mean, there's certainly people who've put in more time, but um, I find that uh, if you've gone to other cultures, gone to uh, other religions and really dug in, there's a certain level of, I don't know, kind of breadth that you, that you bring to uh, the discussion of the practice. So that's something that I feel like uh, I can contribute is not only coming from these other traditions, other cultures, other religions, but then having come back to the States and done a lot of work with psychologists and neuroscientists 
uh, I've had to translate it into the language of science. And what's interesting is I find that when most people translate it into the language of science, they kind of keep the format and, uh, that they learned it in and use different language to communicate it. Mm -hmm. But what happened for me is that as I sunk more and more deeply into the science behind it, into some of the more interesting, you know, neuroscience experiments and even some of the philosophy, you know, our friend Thomas Metzinger and mm -hmm. uh, some of that work, it started to actually change my whole understanding of what was going on uh, with the meditation itself so that I'm not just translating, let's say, Buddhist practice into, you know, Buddhist meditation practice into some uh, secular language, but actually I've reworked it entirely, entirely to be coming from a secular scientific perspective, sort of uh, from square one. Mm -hmm. Well, see, that's, that is so appealing to me. And I, and I know that the book is really great at delivering that message from the very beginning. In fact, you don't, and it's not just one of those, it's not in the format, say of a pop science book without being self-aware. It straight up says in the very beginning, uh, and I'm quoting from it, if you're a card carrying geek, uh, the upside of, of these possible benefits may be strongly counterbalanced by the downside of having to deal with religion and spirituality and other things you may consider nonsense. And I know that's going to be the that especially for people that are listening to this, the the audience for the show, even as you are well aware, meditation often seems like um, bullshit in some way to a lot of people because it often arrives clothed in spirituality or religion or something that is associated with woo in some way, and that turns off a lot of different kinds of people for different reasons. And this book really takes that idea head on, and it speaks directly to that crowd. I mean, that's the title of the book. So, <laughs> so. So to the scientific and secularly minded people, to those sorts of, of listeners, how would you, how would you describe meditation? Like as a, as a, from square one, what is it if you're trying to, to take a new look at it, how would you describe it? Well, I think, um, rather than describing it as a single practice, um, from this way of viewing it, a more secular perspective, I would describe it as a suite of practices that have a whole range of possible benefits. When you're coming from um, the, let's say, religious or traditional perspective, it's a practice you do and you get this whole host of benefits. But I think from the secular perspective, there's targeted applications and specific benefits that um, a person is trying to, you know, achieve and that there are a suite or range of different practices you can do to get specific results. So even the question, we have to kind of disassemble it because there's different practices for, you know, different results. And so when we say, what is meditation? I would say, well, which meditation are you doing for what result? Mm -hmm. But you know what I mean? That's, that's even, um, where I'm going with this in the long run is that even the whole idea that there's one, you know, sort of like thing called meditation, uh, doesn't quite apply. Um, but to, to take your question just, you know, at face value, I, I would say, uh, in the end, most of the benefits of meditation come because you're looking in quotes, like under the hood mm -hmm. of your own experience. You're taking things that are outside of the explicit conscious 
awareness that you have every day and beginning to expose these implicit unconscious processes to conscious awareness. Some of them are things that you deal with all the time, like certain types of uh, cognitive biases, certain types of, you know, uh, um, evolutionary slants to the brain Mm -hmm. or to the way we react that we're just not aware of. And it's one thing to read about them, which is super fascinating, which is why I love your stuff. But it's another thing to sort of do a specific practice that, you know, kind of peels back the layers covering that up and shows you it actually happening real time in your own experience. Because um, that is a very, that has a very different effect on your life. Just reading about it is cool and it's fascinating and you can, and you can kind of, um, what's the word you can, um, begin to correct for it in certain ways. But mm-hmm. once you can actually observe it happening real time, it becomes much more of a, um, um, I mean, just obviously it's so much more explicit and you can see it happening and begin to deal with it head on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of, you know, one of the things that is not usually, you know, I hesitate to use the word intuitive, but it, it's, it's it's something that is not usually apparent until you learn more about this, the, how the brain works and everything and how the mind is generated is that the, the antecedents to our behaviors and to our emotional states and the influence of emotions on our thoughts and behaviors, almost all of that stuff happens invisibly and without our awareness. And even sometimes when we think we're, we are on the trail of why we are thinking or doing something, we often are just sort of picking out what's salient and then pinning, you know, that as being the source of whatever it is we're talking about. And we may be completely wrong. And, and yeah, we're really good at making up explanations, but that doesn't mean those explanations are valid. Right. And one of the parts of the book that excited me was this, one, you, you, you talk, you have a section about things that you can, some of the benefits that are quantified by science, some of the benefits that are backed up. And there's just so much, um, there's so many cited bits of research throughout the, the text. So this is, there's a, there's a, an avalanche of sources in the back of the book about this is, this study showed this and this study showed this and there's evidence for this. And one of the things you, you talk about as being uh, a benefit is this ability to have a have a more of an awareness of what actually is the source of your either your emotional state or what is the emotion that's leading to this action of this feeling this behavior this this decision this judgment and i'd like to hear more about what you have to say about it if you can sort of unpack that aspect of it because it seems it seems unbelievable and i would like to learn more about it so you mean specifically the emotional aspect? Well, it's, it's, it's this, uh, self-knowledge about, mm. um, finding out, you know, you, you speak about, you speak of pulling back a curtain and seeing the machinery at work and it's not, it starts as a peak, but you start to actually really be able to, to not only see it, but modify it, or at least not feel the negative, negative feelings or the negative impact of, having no idea why this is happening or why you're feeling this way. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, the insight aspect, right? This, the book is called the mindful geek. And, 
uh, mindfulness meditation, uh, one of the traditions it comes from is called Vipassana, and Vipassana translates as insight. So we could also, we could equally call this insight meditation for geeks. And it's called insight meditation because you get insights into your own uh, behavior, your own feelings, what's going on with you. And it's this whole under the hood aspect, right? You start to peel back the curtain and see what's going on. The easiest way to, or the best example I would say is in the realm of emotions. Um, This is a thing that just, when I started working with it, just knocked me out. And that is the fact that, you know, emotions are, um, uh, evolved behaviors, right? There, there's something Darwin wrote a whole book about emotions. Uh, it was his last book. It was one of the first bestsellers, super fascinating text, by the way, where he said, you know, uh, human emotions didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, they evolved from their animal precursors. They're really important, uh, determinants of behavior, and, you know, because animals are having them too, it's pretty clear that uh, a large part of our emotional experience is happening in, your, in our bodies. It's a physical feeling in your body. And this is all, like antithetical to the current, uh, you know, Western model of emotions, which is the cognitive model that just basically says that they're all mental. And... Um, when I was first exposed to this by uh, one of my main meditation teachers and the guy whose you know work is the the real basis of a lot of the stuff in the book, uh, uh, Shinzen Young, when I first started working with him and he said, "Look, we're going to meditate on the body sensation of emotions," I was like, "What are you talking about?" You know, I couldn't, I almost couldn't get it. But he's like, "Well, we're just going to feel in your body." Uh, when you're having an emotion and there may be a mental component, but there's also a physical component. So for example, if you're angry, your forehead is going to furrow and you can feel that furrowing and, or your lips are going to get real thin and tight and you're going to feel that thinness and tightness. And, you know, he went into this, it's a, you know, very detailed description of how to meditate on the body sensations associated with emotions. And I was like, what is this crap? I mean, (laughs) why, why would I do that? It just seems ridiculous. Um, and yet when I started doing it, I was shocked because first of all, um, uh, you, I just didn't, have that concept. I think most of us don't have the concept that they're embodied experiences. They're happening in your body. So that was already a revelation. And then beyond that, um, doing even just a little bit of it, you realize you're having all these feelings that you didn't know you were having. Um, and so by opening that door to the body and going, Hey, you know, uh, am I having any emotional feelings right now? Um, even doing that just a little bit, you start to realize um, that you can detect emotional flavors that are happening all the time. And this turns out to be really important for a bunch of things. One, uh, you uh, begin to understand uh, your own feelings. You know, um, knowing what you're feeling is actually a huge problem for a lot of people. And learning to contact the feelings, the emotional flavors in the body um, is a very good way to begin to actually know what you're feeling. Um, another thing is that it turns out that emotions are the salient part of decision making. 
You know, you can't, there's no such thing as a rational decision uh, in a human being. Human beings, uh, you know, can rate things rationally, but that final moment of which is it A or B comes from um, uh, effective forecasting, where you decide which is which outcome is going to feel better. And you do that by imagining the outcome and feeling the emotional uh, uh, response in your body. Mm-hmm. So, um, and in fact, they can prove that something like this is the case because people who have the big emotional centers on both sides of their brain um, damaged, say, in a car accident or through disease or whatever, uh, but the rest of their brain is intact, these people lose all ability to make good decisions. So they're they're still completely intelligent. They're still um, totally rational. Um, they seem to be fine, but because they can't get this emotional feedback from their body uh, to help them make decisions, they quickly lose their jobs and lose their relationships and end up in a pretty bad place um, <clears throat> in terms of their life. So we know that getting this feedback from the body of what you're feeling is crucial to making good decisions. And so the more that you... Um, meditate on emotions in the body and feel what you're feeling and learn to get nuanced with that, the uh, actually better decision making you start to uh, manifest and also um, the more nuanced decision making. But there's even a further aspect, which is, um, and this is the one that I just love the most, it turns out that that's that feeling emotions in your own body is how we understand other people. Okay, it's not just understanding yourself. Uh, it turns out that when you are watching another person um, talk about something, you're evaluating, you know, their, you're doing theory of mind, right? You're evaluating their internal state. But the way that one of the main ways that you're evaluating their emotional state is by subtly recreating the expressions they're making in your own body. Mm. Um, you're doing micro expressions. So, you know, they did some just they did some super interesting studies about this, where they took people, a control group um, and, of of uh, women versus a control group of women who had Botox injections in their face, <laughs> and they had them, you know, watch these films that are um, supposed to elicit um, empathy, and it turned out that the people who um, did not have Botox injections in their face had much higher empathy than the people who did have Botox injections. And so the speculation was like, oh, they're the, the people with the Botox uh, injections have slightly frozen the muscles of their face. So they can't actually do this uh, unconscious micro expression mimicking of another person and understand them. Mm -hmm. So just to prove the point, they then, um, had one control group again, just you know, going uh, observe these um, movies or people to to rate their empathy, and then they had another group who they put like a stiffening cream on their face. And the point of this stiffening cream is that it does not your your face isn't numb and your muscles can still move, but they have to work a little harder, right, and to overcome that stiffen that stiff resistance. And because they had to work a little harder, they um, could the person um, could feel it more strongly. It went from being oh, okay. implicit to just a little bit more explicit because 
the, the, the feeling of work in your face muscles was amplified. Right. And what happened, those people had higher empathy than the control group. So it really seemed to prove the point that we're reading people emotionally by using our own bodies uh, um, to ref actually mimic their expressions. Now, of course, typically this is going on unconsciously on the micro level, way below people's, you know, way under the hood. We just don't know we're doing this. But when you start meditating on emotions in your own body and get really good at it, you know, just like the um, famous experiment with the Lundy, London taxi cab drivers, your insula, the part of your body, the part of your brain that feels these uh, emotional sensations in your body gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The more you meditate, you get better and better at feeling your own body sensations. They get higher and higher resolution. And so, um, this, this unconscious, mim the, this unconscious mimicry of other people becomes conscious. And become, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but this is, okay. this is the, this is the part that this was my entryway into changing my opinion about meditation and really starting to understand that it's a, that what we're talking about here is in completely within the realm of, of, of science and, and, and psychology and, and neuroscience, because this is what you're describing with, with the London cabs is neuroplasticity. And you, you talk about it in the book and the London, the, well, actually, why don't you explain what happened with the London cabbies so that we can sort of launch off into neuroplasticity? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty simple, you know, um, uh, there's a part of the brain that is um, responsible for remembering space. It, it, essentially, it makes a map for you in your brain. I think it's the hippocampus, isn't it? I can't recall. Um, but in any case, they wanted to study um, people who had to make very big, complicated maps in their brains all the time. And it turns out that the people on Earth who have the biggest, most complicated map in their brain are London cab drivers. Right. Because London, you know, is like a very ancient city. It was put together all willy-nilly, helter-skelter. Like there's no pattern or rhyme or reason to the streets. There's no heuristic you can make to understand the streets, you know, or model that makes it easier or grid to memorize. You can't just um, drop in from somewhere else and just become a London cabbie. You have to really know the city. You have to memorize the city literally right. because there's, there's just no heuristic for it. They so even have a, they even have a test, right? That you have to pass. A, you can't be a cabbie without uh, passing the test. And the test involves basically memorizing the street map, okay. uh, the hard way, you know, by heart. <laughs> right. And so, you know, they tested these people and it turns out that the, the portion of their brain that, you know, memorizes uh, space like that is much, much larger than, uh, you know, control groups brain than in a con the brain of a control group person. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the longer that the person had been driving a cab, the bigger that part of their brain was. So, you know, even though that doesn't prove causation, it's still a pretty convincing example of neuroplasticity that your brain gets better at doing the things that you do with your brain all the time. Right. You know, it sort of allocates more neuronal resources and thickens that part of the brain. It beefs it up. So in meditation, it's doing, especially in, um, when we're doing a lot of body sensation meditation, the part of your brain responsible for feeling your own internal body sensations is the uh, insula. 
And that's a thing that they've proven gets bigger in people who meditate. It gets bigger very quickly. After only eight weeks of meditation, your insula is measurably larger. And that the longer you've been meditating, the thicker your insula gets. So you can predict the thickness of the insula in someone's brain based on how many years or decades they've been meditating. Again, you know, we don't know about the causation, but it seems to be clear that you're building the part of your brain that does that. Right. And this is what's so tantalizing to me because, you know, if you work out, you lift weights or whatever, you're, you're, you are changing your muscle tissue. You're altering the actual structure of your meaty parts and literally changing your body at the atomic level. And I dig the fact that you can use your mind to alter your body in this way. And the things that most appeal to me concerning meditation is that it's a way to willfully alter the brain. You're using your brain to change your brain at the atomic level, which isn't a really that much of a whoa dude bong hit kind of epiphany because once, once we learned that neuroplasticity existed, we realized that all learning is the brain changing itself in this way, a new language or a degree in chemistry, doing a backflip or whatever that is the brain altering the brain. And with meditation, it seems like the sort of change though, that would be impossible otherwise, at least to the, to, to most people living a modern lifestyle. And the more you attempt to focus, the better you get at focusing on command. And, and so a real change is taking place. You're slowly becoming able to think differently and to hold thoughts differently and to dismiss thoughts that before led to different things. And it's, it's really amazing to me and it's, and that it's totally makes sense and it's not magical. And the result, it's not the, you know, shaking hands with the deity or anything, but it's biological. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's, it's biological. This is biology and it's amazing. It's almost like, uh, in a, in a weird way, it's like, it is like self-surgery, like you're messing with your own brain just by using your brain. Am I on the right path with all that? Yeah, I would, you know, the, the changes are taking on, uh, are taking place on the neuronal level. And also in some cases, uh, there's some intriguing studies that it's also taking place, uh, on the genetic level of the neurons in the brain. You know, there's some histone masking and unmasking going on so that you're actually changing gene expression in your brain. Um, but yeah, you know, if you want to get good at concentrating, you do concentration type meditation and, you know, you build that aspect of your brain and and you can become a tremendously focused person. And it's not even that difficult. It's just a matter of applying the, you know, the practices over and over in a regular way. And you are literally building the part of your brain that helps you focus. You know, a ton of meditation helps to build the prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, sort of like the the manager of the brain. It's the the latest to appear in evolution. It's the part of the brain that gives us sort of like executive control. And so, you know, almost all meditation uh, practices and techniques build that prefrontal cortex. So you're getting a tremendous amount of control over your own mental processes while at the same time learning more about what those processes are from the inside out. And in a nutshell, and I wrote this in my notes, you, the way you describe meditation, if you want to get like a really pithy definition is just that it is a psychological practice that makes the unconscious conscious. And and the result is that often improves our lives in different ways. And it reminded me of, I know that there's this, there's this quote from 
George Miller, and I, I only know this because I <laughs> I memorized it for a lecture, but he said that <laughs> it's the it's the result of thinking, not the process of thinking, that appears spontaneously in consciousness. And it's it's really appealing to me that there is a a simple but deep practice that can not make everything that's unconscious conscious. Like you, you even, you talk about, you know, you don't, you wouldn't want to know, you wouldn't want to keep up with your digestion on a, on a second by second basis. But the, there are other things that you would like to be able to have a bit of, um, awareness about and a bit of volition over that you currently don't have because you aren't aware that it's taking place. It's in that incognito part that, you know, like David Eagleman would, would have said of what's going on under there. And that's, to me, that seems like absolutely this is something you'd want to understand and do. And I know that you teach this and uh, you uh, do teach this a lot of times to people who are in that startup techie uh, West Coast world of people who are geeky and practical and secular. I'm wondering for someone who is not part of that world or has not uh, had any introduction to this and they are part of that world or another how how much time would it take does it how much time will it take to learn this and how often should you do it once you have learned it well learning the basics um will only take an hour or less i mean if 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 i were working with someone one on one i could show them you know how to do a basic meditation in a few minutes uh reading it you know might take an hour or more um to because the techniques are actually quite simple um, there are some, you know, pitfalls or ways you can end up in the weeds. So it, you know, as you mentioned, it, it helps to work with someone just to make sure that you're kind of on the right track, but getting going is very, very simple. It's like saying, you know, how hard is it to learn to like do push-ups and sit-ups? You can learn it pretty fast and there's also ways you can make mistakes, but the real work comes in doing it every day. And, you know, I'd like to say that, um, boy, I wish everyone was doing this like a half an hour a day, but it's really, you know, I've seen that people can get very good results with 10 minutes a day of dedicated practice, as long as it's like five, six days a week and you're doing it for a month or two, you will notice, uh, a major change in, you know, the way you're experiencing life, a change for the better. And the, <laughs> Well, first of all, zoning out in the shower, that doesn't count, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of the opposite. Of meditating. That's, you know, before I learned anything about it, that's, I really had that idea. I was like, oh, this is all meditation is, you know, you, you zone out for a minute you start, you, you come up with ideas, you write them down on your little pad and, and, and it's not, it's the, you're like, you're saying it's, it's actually intensely focusing and not the opposite of, of having any, uh, uh, not driving and lo- and forgetting how you got where you got it. It's totally different from them. And if, if you, if I wanted to give this a shot, like say tomorrow morning, like, like I want, I know I want people to buy your book and everything, but if, uh, if <laughs> somebody, <laughs> if somebody wanted to give this a shot tomorrow, tomorrow morning, what would you recommend for like an absolute beginner just so they wouldn't be scared to actually uh, take the plunge and get your book? Yeah, I would just say, you know, you begin by developing the ability to feel your own body. As adults, especially in our culture, we're pretty much locked up in our thinking. And um, when we, you know, have an experience of the body, we are actually having an experience of thinking about the body. And what you want to do is begin to um, remember how to actually have a direct 
feeling of your body. And so I would just say, you know, tomorrow, sit down for five minutes, feel your feet, feel your feet on the floor, you know, actually feel that, not thinking about your feet, not um, having mental images about your feet, not, you know, having verbal, you know, uh, mental words about your feet, but actually just feeling your feet. And then feeling, let's say, your butt or thighs touching the seat of the chair and really tuning into those sensations and feeling the feelings in your hands. Just some really basic stuff like that. And if you wanted to kind of uh, breathe a little deeply while you did that, feeling your feet and your hands and, you know, your body on the chair, that would be a basic meditation right there. And doing five or ten minutes of that um, uh, would be very beneficial. And and no, I know because I can put myself in a former mindset that that sounds there's like there's how could that possibly be good or beneficial or amazing or have anything to do with any of the things we talked about? But uh, it really does because what you discover is that you don't pay attention to anything at all, and, <laughs> and so when you force yourself into that state, you very quickly realize there are all sorts of things happening that you're that you are often trying your best to avoid this place and obviously if it's an undis, if it's an unexplored area then there are going to be things there that you didn't know you could use and you you beautifully write about how paradoxical it becomes you you write that you're cultivating an attitude of awareness and acceptance but if you're not feeling accepting, that's okay. Accept that you can't accept it, which I love. I love, I love, <laughs> I love loopy sentences like that. And, and you, and you, this is a quote again, the flip side is important too. If you find you're judging things that happen in the meditation, try not to judge yourself for judging. It's, it's great because then you acknowledge that you just say, you know, to the best of your ability, accept that you're feeling judgmental and all of this is okay. And if you're not okay with it, then acknowledge you know that you're not okay and and it all sounds you're actually right that sounds silly but the more you do this the more you become aware of the the machinery behind it and the more what seems like a paradox will become uh the paradox will start to dissolve or you at least begin to see the shape of the paradox and why it's a paradox and that's this all reminds me of this study and you bring it up in the book and it's one of the most insane studies ever and before we go i would love for you to sort of take us through it the study would, where Dan Gilbert made people sit with a uh, and ha- and sit quietly, but be able to escape with an electric shock. Could you sort of take us through that study? Yeah, it's simple. You know, they they created these um, thinking rooms, and uh, in a thinking room, your job was to go in there and just uh, essentially be alone with your thoughts. And um, I, I'm just uh, remembering this probably wrong, but uh, in my memory, they did it to begin with, with no electric shock. They just wanted people to go in and sit and um, report on what that was like uh, without any distractions. I mean, really, they're they're testing people's ability to tolerate um, just sitting alone with their feelings, <laughs> right. sitting alone with their thoughts. And they, had, and, they, and they couldn't have any um, devices with them or anything. They no to... devices, no pencils, no distractions, no books, no games. You just have to sit there. It's a thinking room. <laughs> and it turned out that people were so averse to this, they hated it so much that uh, Gilbert, he's a great guy, he just came up with a um, a second experiment, which is like, well, if they hate it that much, would they rather do something really unpleasant than sit alone with their thoughts? So 
I just love this kind of almost demonic <laughs> experiment where they then put them in the thinking room, but gave them the ability to give themselves a painful electric shock. And they even tested, they even only put people in the room who swore in advance that they would do anything to avoid a painful electric shock. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't like they were somehow getting people who liked to be shocked. And what happened, uh, as you might guess by all this setup, a lot of people, um, started distracting themselves from sitting with their own thinking by shocking themselves. Yes, and I just read it so I can tell you it was 67% of the men eventually <laughs> shocked themselves instead of sitting quietly. <laughs> yeah, so I mean this is um it's both it would be, you know, hilarious if it wasn't so sad, right? It's like we can't <laughs> we got to a point where we just can't sit alone with our own you know, minds. But really that's one of the main reasons I started meditating. Part of the thing um, that was driving my anxiety was I just couldn't stand my own mind. My thoughts were so painful. And so I can really relate to that situation. And one thing I can say is that when you're constantly avoiding, uh, you know, your own mind in a sense, or being alone with your own thoughts, uh, that's a painful and difficult place to be. And it's driving you. I know it drove me. It drives you to a lot of behaviors, some of which might be just like binge watching TV, but there can be a lot of other stuff that it drives people to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, just like much worse for you than just shocking yourself um, with a battery. <laughs> and so, you know, and so um, there's a huge benefit to meditation right there, just learning to just sit even with a lot of thinking. You know? Yeah. I mean, well, the, they, you could, they could not derive anything positive from their thinking room because they were looking for the escape the entire, you know, it was like a, it's like a, a rat in a maze looking for the exit. Like they just could not benefit from it. And that's, you may not find yourself day to day in that situation, but having that skill, totally not, yeah. right, right. But having that skill set will, can be that can be applied to whatever it is you need to actually be focused upon and that's that is a powerful thing to cultivate with with practice with effort that you can actually do so that's exactly right i mean imagine that you are for example trying to focus on your project at work or trying to focus on let's say having a good time with your relationship partner um but you are unable to deal with the anxiety that comes up when things are that still or that quiet. You need distraction so bad that you'd rather shock yourself. You <laughs> see that you're, you know, unable to actually engage in your life because it's too, um, you know, you're just not used to dealing with your own insides. And so one of the very most basic and very um, quickly um, appearing benefits of meditation is that you learn to sit with yourself. And that's, again, that's what I'm saying. You're taking some of this unconscious material that in, in this sort of case, I'm de we're describing people who are like, kind of like tamping it down by being distracted all the time and just allowing it to come up. Well, you know, just, you're, you're a very technologically savvy person. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you, you aren't, you know, this, you don't just sit on a mountain and look at clouds all day. You are very engaged with, uh, you know, social media and the technology as it is. And I, I'm wondering how, how, because you are 
so far along this path and you have done so much work and I'm assuming you've got some really robust neurons <laughs> in this, in this arena. So like, how do you, how do you find that you interact with things like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and smartphones and Netflix and, and Hulu? How do you, what do you, have you noticed that there is anything different about the way you interact with that world than someone who doesn't have the ability to turn on and off focus and doesn't have the ability to sit quietly within, within themselves. Have you noticed any differences yourself? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, you're trying to remember yourself at a past state or compare yourself to another person, you know? Um, so it's all guessing. But what I would say in, is that, um, early on in meditation, especially if you're working on the concentration aspect, it's really important to sort of do one thing at a time and try to reduce distractions so that you can focus, um, to help build your focus muscle. Um, but over time, uh, as you work on meditation over years, um, it becomes very difficult to be distracted. And in fact, um, uh, even if there's a lot of thinking going on, even if there's a lot of external things happening, you're very focused on them. And so um, there's a kind of um, continuous focus that is switching the focus object over and over. I don't know if I'm making any sense here. No, no, you. I understand. Totally. Task switching, which is very, you know, I find myself, when I know I'm behaving badly, when I'm not you know, I'm, I'm practicing very poor cognitive hygiene. I, I can always tell because I'm looping and I will, I'll find myself, I'll, I'll open a tab that it was already, you know, I'll close a tab and then open it right back up again. And I'm like, why did I do that? Or I, I find myself, <laughs> I just checked Twitter. I know there's nothing new there. Why am I doing this? And I know I should instead be working on this project that is due. You dopamine addict. You. <laughs> right, right. I can, I, I've even put a, um, a post-it note up before on my computer that said, don't loop because I, I could tell that I was just entering that delicious hamster wheel of, uh, being rewarded for, Oh, look, there's a, there's a, there's an ad reply. Oh, look, there's a new email. And I, and I, it's, it's not, these things aren't bad by themselves, but not being able to focus on the task at hand or tasks switch in a way that is, um, you know, economical to what it is you're trying to achieve overall is, a real skill that is difficult to cultivate. And I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm interested that it, it, it's, it, it encourages me to know that you have that skill set and that you didn't just, you just weren't born with it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that I think is, um, again, misunderstood for a lot of, uh, traditions about meditation. And that is, uh, this is a skill you're building. It's not, in my opinion, it's not a natural state you're returning to, which is often, uh, you know, how it's addressed. And I, I think that that's a, a beautiful and poetic and useful way to address it sometimes, but I, especially from the subjective perspective, but I think objectively it's a skill you're building. And, um, particularly about thinking, uh, I mentioned it right away, you know, you can have a very, very deep meditation while you're thinking like crazy. Um, if you get good at meditating on thinking. So, you know, these, this sort of task, task switching and having a lot of stuff going on with social media and all that can become, um, over time. And I, you know, I don't want to, 
underestimate the amount of time that takes. It is a it is a commitment, but eventually, even stuff that seems very distracting like that can become a kind of deep focus experience that is a flow state. Yeah, and it's 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 very you know if you are if you get into a state of flow and something drags your attention away from it, it, it can be very difficult to return to it. And it can be very time consuming to dig your way back down into that place. So oh, I could talk about this forever, man. This is, I love, I love, I love, I love all of it. I, 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 um, You're not my favorite subject. <laughs> right. I, 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 I know people are going to want to find you, keep up with you, Possibly, if they live in your area, take classes from you and definitely buy this book. How can people find you on the internet? Um, if they're interested in finding the book, I mean, it's for sale on Amazon, you know, The Mindful Geek. So that's easy. Um, probably the best website to sort of get a hold of me is called meditationwithmichael.com. And that's just, you know, got uh, contact info and classes and so on. Um, my meditation blog is called deconstructing yourself. So there's a lot of different uh, places online. I, I would say, uh, deconstructing yourself is great. If you want to read a lot of stuff about meditation and, you know, my friend, uh, Jessica Graham writes on there also some very intriguing stuff. Um, and uh, meditation with Michael, if you're interested in attending classes or, you know, contacting me and then just Amazon for the book. All right. Look, man, this is great. And I, I really, I really love that you put this together. And I think you're a great advocate, spokesperson, ambassador, and all that stuff for this world, especially for people who, and I can, I know if anyone was, was like me from years ago, who's like in that, you think you're being a, a really good skeptic. You're thinking you, you think you're being a really good, uh, a, uh, empirical, practical, evidence-based person to, just completely this on the side of, of something that's been around for thousands of years. This, you're a great person to introduce this to people. So I'm really glad you put this project together and I really hope you give, uh, you have lots of luck with it. Thanks David. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. If you love this show, you will love the great courses. That's it. That could be the end of this advertisement. Just go to the great courses, get some stuff because you will love it. But in particular, there's one course that I want you to get right now. It's called The Art of Critical Decision Making. It's taught by Professor Michael A. Roberto. And it's all about how to make better decisions based off of what we know so far when it comes to the social sciences, high stakes decisions, cognitive biases, avoiding decision making traps, framing, risk, opportunity, recognizing patterns, and all sorts of other stuff you've never heard about. Normal accident theory, normalizing deviance, practical drift. Have you ever heard of these things? No, you have not. You will know all about them at the end of this. 24 lectures in this overall course about how to make better decisions. And you can get this as part of a special offer to people who listen to this podcast at 80% off, along with eight other of their best-selling Courses for a limited time. This is all of the great courses, a place that has been putting out stuff like this for so long. 500 subjects, science, history, philosophy from top professors and experts. I think it's fantastic. You can watch or listen to any of them online downloads, streaming via their apps, 
on a DVD, CD, however you want to put this into your brain and make yourself smarter, you can do it. Here's how you get the special offer. Order today from The Great Courses by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. In each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or discuss a new scientific study in the realm of self-delusion and the neuroscience and psychology of reason before I eat a cookie. And in this episode, that news comes from fastcompany.com. The headline is The Secret to Sounding Smart Using Simple Language, written by Lisa Evans. Lisa writes that a series of studies out of UCLA led by Daniel M. Oppenheimer, a professor at the School of Management, seems to show that the longer the words that people use, like the longer they are in length, the more letters in them, and the more syllables in those words, the less intelligent people seem to be when people estimate how smart the author might be in relation to the words they're using. In this research, the scientists took college admission essays and used a computer program to replace certain short words with their longer counterparts. And they found that people tended to rate the essays with the shorter words as being written by more competent people than if the words were longer. Reversing the study, replacing those longer words in sociology dissertations with their shorter counterparts produced the opposite result. People rated the simplified dissertations as being written by more intelligent authors than did they with the original versions. Oppenheimer, writes Evans, has also shown that longer and more complex names of companies are less attractive to investors and candidates with longer and more complex names are less likely to receive votes. Now, the reason for this is unclear, but the speculation is that it probably has something to do with the same things that work in the availability heuristic. And then the availability heuristic is one of those weird biases that we carry around. It's a heuristic that can lead to biases. And the heuristic works like this. The easier it is to process a bit of information, the more positive we tend to believe that bit of information is. So the easier it is to think about something or the easier it is to recall something or the easier it is to understand something quickly, the more likely we we tend to believe that thing is positive or has positive qualities. We mistake ease with good. And in this situation, that might be true. It could be that the reading it easily is something that helps us to believe that it has more positive qualities. Now, there could be a lot more to this. There could just simply be a lot of meta thinking, you know, thinking about your own thinking. There could be a lot of uh, estimating this person is trying to trick you. They're trying to cover something up with all those long words that they don't actually know that they use a thesaurus to get to and they looked up on Google. But however it is, however it works, all this research that's being done right now, and they've done multiple studies, seems to show that if you want to impress people, if you want people to um, feel like you are intelligent, whether or not you are, stick to the shorter words. In fact, in the article, he says, uh, as a quote, uh, one of the things that Lisa Evans drew out of Oppenheimer, he says, you should use, in, <laughs> you should use, use instead of utilizing, utilize. Oh, Oppenheimer, how clever, how pithy. If you want to read the full article, go to fastcompany.com. The headline is The Secret to Sounding Smart Using Simple Language. 
Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's In good each episode of the You Are Not So C Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. Amanda McRaney, my wife, she cooks those cookies. She bakes them from the recipes that are sent in from all around the world. And if we pick one of those and we do go through all those cookies, I promise you, every cookie recipe that we are sent, we read and think, is this the one for this show? I know we have a huge backlog at this point. There's like 50 plus cookies. We will get to them, I promise. And if we don't get to them, I will send you something. But we do look through all of them and we pick the one that we think is going to be the best for that episode. And then we make it and eat it and talk about it. And if we pick your cookie, then I will send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. In this episode, it comes from Nick and Leanna. And Nick and Leanna, they send me this incredible cookie from Hawaii, I'm assuming, because they say, Aloha, David. We are sending this cookie we just baked for the fall season. It is a modification of a traditional oatmeal raisin cookie, swapping out raisins for chocolate chips, in parentheses, a parenthetical, mm, yes, and adding in pecans. It is... That's right. And I've said this before on the show. It's pecan. If you're from somewhere else in the world and you say pecan, go away. Get out of my general vicinity with your pecan weirdness. It's pecan. They write, it is like eating a pumpkin pie. I'm sorry. Let me start over. It is like eating a pumpkin spice latte that has been baked in the oven and also has amazing caramelized sugars. The taste of fall, they write. My wife, Liana, is pregnant, and when she eats this cookie, you can see the baby freak out under the belly. Oh, wow. That's straight. <laughs> okay, they actually write what I was thinking straight out of the movie Alien, except with cookies. Okay. <laughs> so this spiced pecan chocolate chip cookie, or as they're calling it, just fall cookies, it's butter and eggs and sugar and brown sugar, vanilla and flour and oatmeal and chopped pecans and chocolate chips and cinnamon and pumpkin pie spice and salt and baking powder. And it's sort of a, a straightforward, put all the stuff in the cookie and bake it kind of cookie. And I'm going to try it right now. Here we go. Aloha. Mm. Jingle bell, jingle bell. I know that we are not close to Christmas. We're just entering fall. But I hear jingle bells. I hear jingle bells and assorted festive voices in my brain. This is great. I'm going to take another bite. Crunch, crunch. Hmm. You know what? I don't remember who did this in my family, but someone used to use a spray can, an aerosol spray can that was just the smell of Christmas. <laughs> they would go around the house spraying it, and it really did smell like Christmas. It was like some spices and some tree smells and some fireplace smells. I feel like, and if you took that can and this wouldn't kill you and you sprayed it directly into your mouth and just sort of let it build up on your tongue, that's what's happening to me right now. Mmm, edible Christmas taste and soft. Mm-mm, mm-mm, 
edible Christmas presents under the tree and in my mouth. Oh, this is so good. Thank you so much, Nick and Leana. This is great. I did not experience a small human being writhing inside of me after I ate it. Uh, I didn't have anything like that. What I had was uh, something else. <laughs> it was uh, poisoning yourself with an aerosol spray can full of chemicals in a factory made to smell somewhat like Christmas. But either way, I think this is a great cookie for anyone to make. It's a great time of year to start making this kind of stuff because personally, I'm not over pumpkin pie spice. I know it's everywhere. I'm not going to be one of those hipsters when it comes to spices and say, I liked pumpkin pie spice before it was popular, and I did. And now that it is popular, I'm not going to have it. No, I will have it. I will have it on, every, on everything except pizza, which I have seen on the internet. This is a great cookie. I recommend it to everyone. We will have it up like we have everything else. This comes from Nick Bardun and his wife, Leana from Kalua Kona, Hawaii. Aloha, fantastic deliciousness. Thank you so much. And we are sending a book signed flying over the ocean to you right now. Thank you for this cookie. Mm. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, head to boingboing.net. If you want to hear all the previous episodes of this podcast, go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes, or just the website, youarenotsosmart.com, where you can find links to everything that I talked about today, including things like cookie recipes and more information about both of my books. Send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. If I bake your cookie, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook and Twitter and Google+. On Twitter, it is at NotSmartBlog, and I am at David McRaney. Opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music bands are by Drew Garraway and Banjo Apocalypse.